0: Okay. Hey, Chicagoans, January is already half over. (laughs) Which means that winter, well, I guess it's only been about a month of winter. Yeah, officially. Meteorological winter. Sorry about that. Okay. Let's go to something hopeful. If you remember Bill's final sermon at the end of August, he took us to. Luke 24, and he took us to Jesus, instructing his disciples and teaching them after his resurrection and just before his ascension. And this is what he said. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalms basically saying everything in the Old Testament was about me, is about me. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, that's an authoritative statement, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That is one of the portions of Scripture that we look to in our understanding of preaching and teaching Christ from all of Scripture. And as you know, when we go through Old Testament books, we seek to do that each and every week. What does it look like to preach Christ even from the Old Testament as Jesus instructed his disciples to do. And oftentimes when we do that, we kind of exposit the text and there's kind of a great reveal at the end of the sermon, right? And this is where Jesus is. This morning, we're going to reverse that a little bit. That's why I read from Luke 24. This morning I want to show you Jesus in the first chapter of Hebrews that will then help us understand 1 Samuel 2 and 3. The big reveal is going to be at the beginning. And then you can see where he's revealed in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament there are three primary offices and by offices I mean positions. People who are in positions because they've been appointed by God to be in those positions. And they are positions of authority, but only positions of authority because they've been appointed by God to those positions. The first is king. The king is appointed by God, and the king is meant to be faithful to the revealed word of God as he rules over the people of God. The second is priest. A priest, specifically the high priest, was also appointed by God, and whereas the king was meant to be faithful, the priest facilitates the revealed word for the people as he carries out the sacrificial system. Thirdly, the office of prophet, who is also appointed by God, and the prophet forwards the revealed word of God to the people. So the king is faithful to the revealed word, the priest facilitates the revealed word, and the prophet forwards the revealed word. So now, listen to Hebrews 1, through 1-4, which Sabrina just read a few minutes ago. You can look there if you want. But listen to how we hear these offices here in these first four verses of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What should we hear? Jesus the son is God's prophet. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. What should we hear? Jesus, the King, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, more royal language. Jesus is. The king, and he created the world, his kingdom, and he continues to uphold the kingdom by the very word of his power. After making purification for sins, priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, king. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus Christ, our King, Priest, and Prophet. Let's pray to him. Jesus, what a privilege to know that we are not just talking about you today, but you are here among us, and you are forming your people. You are building us through the Spirit into a dwelling place for God, and so we ask that you would do that this morning. Take your word and As we just sang, plant it deep in us, form and fashion us, O Lord, for your glory. Amen. We'll begin with the office of king. When we last left 1 Samuel, which was last Sunday, a formerly barren wife was rejoicing. Rejoicing in prayerful, boastful song because now she was a new mom. She who could not have a son now has a son. This wife, this now mother, Hannah, she has just fulfilled her vow to the Lord that she had made by presenting him to the Lord for lifelong service in his presence at the tabernacle in Shiloh. The boy's name was Samuel and he was just a few years old, Samuel would indeed live a full life of service in the presence of the Lord. Samuel's mother, I'm going to go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel here, you can as well. 1 Samuel 2 and 3 is where we'll be this morning. Samuel's mother, Hannah, concluded her song by prayerfully singing this, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is interesting language because she's very forthright in anticipating the arrival of a king. And she does not place the king necessarily at the same level as the Lord, in a sense. Because it is the Lord who will give strength to his king. But was it even right for Israel to be waiting for a king? If you grew up in Sunday school and you went through the book of 1 Samuel, you might have the impression that Israel sinned greatly by asking for a king. Well, in a couple of weeks, John Butler is going to preach and he's going to actually handle chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, which is where they ask for a king. But for now, know this. A royal dynasty was always in God's plan for his people. In fact, when he made his covenant with Abraham, God said to Abraham, kings shall come from you. Later on in Genesis 49, Jacob says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Israel's sin in chapter 8 was that they asked for a king to judge us like the nations. They envied the power and the prestige, excuse me, the power and the prestige of their neighbors and thereby discarded God as their true provider and king. Israel's kings were meant to be appointed by God, faithful to his word as they ruled over his people. We saw this in Judges, as we kind of touched on that when we were studying the book of Ruth. God appointed men to rescue his people from judgment for their sin, at certain places and at certain times. But the influence of these judges was limited. They were small kings, judging the people in a specific area at a specific time. But they did not bring unity to all the people of Israel. They could not bring unity and they could not change the hearts of the people of Israel. They, they could not bring all the people back to covenant obedience to Yahweh. And we find that out, as we've repeated often, at the end of Judges, where the author says, all the people did whatever was right in their own eyes, for there was no king in Israel. So of what type of king does Hannah rightly then sing? What is she prayerfully anticipating? An eternal judge appointed by God. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will have an eternal kingship with eternal duty. Listen to Hebrews 1.13. Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This king will judge, and his enemies will be brought low. Hannah also sings, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Listen again in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Did you hear the anointing language? The anointing was the reality that God appointed his king. Hannah's son Samuel is going to be, will be, the final Old Testament judge, or we could call him like a pre-king. Samuel will will prepare the way for God's anointed King David. And King David points us to our eternal king, Jesus Christ, who will one day faithfully judge all people and faithfully rule over his people, his people, forever. That's the office of king. How about the office of priest? If you return to thinking about 1 Samuel, it wasn't only the Lord who was present At the shrine of Shiloh. Where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant came to rest with Joshua. The high priest, Eli, was there as well. He was in our story last week. And Eli accepted Samuel into service, even as a little tyke, before the Lord. Eli was likely about 90 years old and nearing the end of his life. As high priest, Eli was responsible for facilitating the revealed word of the Lord for the people. As a fourth generation descendant of Aaron himself, Eli was tasked with organizing and performing the sacrificial offerings that God required to atone from sin, remain in fellowship with him, and give thanks to him. See, the high priest, Eli, was meant to be an advocate between God and his people. There the high priest was, facilitating the revealed word of the Lord for the people. Though there was no king in Israel, perhaps a faithful high priest would help Israel remain faithful to the word of the Lord. The thing is, something was rotten at the shrine of Shiloh. Two junior priests are present with Samuel and Eli as well Hophni and Phinehas. These two dudes are Eli's sons. Hophni and Phinehas pressed the privileges of their priestly positions, abusing the people for whom they should advocate and also despising the Lord who appointed them. Let's look at 1 Samuel 2, beginning in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Let me read that again. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice the priest's servant would come. While the meat was boiling, and the custom would be that with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. What's happening here is that Hophni and Phinehas are forsaking the revealed word of the Lord. As the family of the high priest, they did have a right to portions of food from the sacrifice. But these dudes would say, number one, we're going to take the best of the sacrificial meat. And number two, we're not going to accept the boiled meat from you. What would happen with the boiling of the meat? The meat would be boiled, and the fat would come off of the meat. Why? Because in Leviticus, God says, the fat belongs to me. These boys were saying, no, fat makes the food taste good. Fat belongs to us. But you had people here that were bringing their sacrifices, people that were pious, that were seeking to follow the revealed word of the Lord and the covenant given to Moses. So in verse 16, if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He, meaning Hophni or Phinehas, would say No. You must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it up to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Hannah would see her son every year and she would bring him a new undergarment to put on and he would wear this cotton ephod, which was a priestly garment, even though he was very young. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Imagine this group of priests at Shiloh. Ninety-year-old Eli, his two sons forsaking the Lord, and then little Samuel. Quite the foursome. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put him to death. If you remember verse 6 from Hannah's song, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. These boys who were exalting themselves were soon to be humbled. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel, he continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, his father being Aaron, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? Look at your privilege, Eli. Look at your position. You have been anointed and appointed as a high priest. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. I have provided everything for you, even what should fill your stomach. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared. Why? to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this, that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. The very place where the revealed word of the Lord should have been esteemed above all else was the very place where the Lord was reviled and dismissed. And in his place, greed, power plays, intimidation, and sexual abuse ruled the day in Shiloh and saturated the shrine. And Eli was complicit. Church, we have to think on this for ourselves. In the American materialistic celebrity complex, where our country exalts wealth, power, influence, and sexual self-expression, why would we... Church, be surprised that the American evangelical celebrity complex also exalts prosperity gospel, celebrity pastors with bully pulpits, and privatized faith that worships in front of a screen instead of in the light of Christ with spiritual siblings. We should not be shocked by the Church Too movement in a society that needed the Me Too movement. Where presidents fondle and then they flaunt the name of God, we should not be shocked when denominational leaders lift their hands to worship while underhandedly erasing the testimonies of the abused. How much of Shiloh is in the American church? Lest we cast stones because we think that we are without sin. Understand that we reap what we sow, don't we? We may point our fingers at the systems of the world, but it's these same systems that we oftentimes lust after or lust through when it comes to our everyday choices. See, even systemic sin finds its root in the hearts of sinners. I make these points pastorally this morning not to lambast or to condemn. But in order for us to lament and mourn. For in large part, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. And by us, I mean the American church. It's no wonder that church hurt runs rampant, a seeming blight on the fields that Jesus proclaimed to be white for the harvest. C.S. Lewis wrote, when Christians behave badly or fail to behave well. We are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. He mentions the wartime propaganda posters in Britain. The wartime posters told us that careless talk costs lives. Well, it is equally true that careless lives cost talk. Our careless lives set the outer world talking and we give them grounds for talking in a way that throws doubt on the believability of Christianity itself. Yet even in a place as depraved as the tabernacle in Shiloh. People like Elkanah and Hannah, in response to the revealed word of the Lord, still came seeking a priestly advocate. This couple, among others, came to Shiloh to sacrifice every year to make atonement for their own sins, to know renewed fellowship with the God of the covenant even as the priests blasphemously sinned. Elkanah and Hannah knew, I'm sure, what was going on. Eli himself has said, everyone is hearing about what you're doing. But they still knew that they needed a sacrifice for their sins. So let us not overanalyze American Shiloh without asking the Spirit to reveal our hidden sins and also to not let us abide in presumptuous sin. The man of God, as you just heard, declared an ultimate fall for Eli's house. You are at this place of privilege. I am bringing you down. And to show you that all of this that I have said about your house is true, I'm going to give you a sign. Both of your boys are going to die on the same day. But that sign also points to verse 35. Look at verse 35, please. In hope, this man of God, an anonymous man of God, who shows up to speak judgment to Eli, also speaks a promise. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Is he speaking himself? The words are coming out of his mouth, but he is speaking for the Lord. The Lord is making a promise here. I will raise up. For myself, a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Though not of the priestly line, little Samuel was going to grow into Judge Samuel, Appointed by God. And he will continue to wear the ephod of a priest. Even though he has not the lineage to wear it. He has been appointed and anointed by God himself. And Judge Samuel, wearing the ephod of the priest, will offer sacrifices. Preparing the way for King David who, as Israel's righteous king, will also wear an ephod. He will also offer sacrifices and be a man after God's own heart. He will do what is in God's heart and mind. Even as he points to King Jesus. To which you have to hear this from Hebrews 9, 11-14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Jesus Christ entered once for all. He did not have to go in and out. He entered once for all into the Holy of Holies not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, as Eli and Samuel and even David would sacrifice, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not an annual redemption, an eternal redemption. Redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, the pure offering himself, and thereby he can purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ is an eternal blood. Those who are covered in it will be eternally covered in it. It is an eternal covenant based on the revealed authoritative word that he himself said and who he himself is. To say, I myself entered into the Holy of Holies where you cannot go. You deserve to die there. But that is the only place. That is the place that we are commanded, that we need to be in God's presence. Without the blood, we can't be there. Jesus says, I've gone there, and I've stayed there. And my blood makes a way for you to be Not just forgiven of your sin. We treat that phrase so tritely with so much Christian cliche. Forgiven of your sin. That means the great debt that you and I could never pay has been paid. That means the great punishment that you and I deserve rightly has fallen fully upon the body of Christ. He is our eternal Savior, our eternal High Priest. And the thing is, the blood of Christ not only atones or brings forgiveness as a sacrifice, it purifies. It purifies our conscience from dead works. Brother and sister, this week, when you are facing temptation... Do not buy into the lie that this is just how it will always be because it is who I am. In Christ, your conscience has been purified by his blood. Does it mean that there is no struggle? Absolutely not. That's why Jesus says, through the author of Hebrews, boldly approach the throne in your time of need because I've gone through every single temptation that you ever have been. I know the weightiness of it. I know the deception of it. I know even how your flesh feels when tempted in that way. So in our temptation, brother and sister, remember our conscience is pure. Plead the blood of Christ. And remember what is true. His blood is eternal and he is in the Holy of Holies, and you are there with him. This is good news. This is good news. But, we have to admit that the reality in our society is that the prevalence of church hurt, this blight on the fields that are white has prompted questions about church authority about biblical authority because of authoritarianism and abuse that have happened in Christ's church listen we're going to talk more about authority and leadership as we go further on into 1 Samuel those are repeated themes as Mark Dever says about 1 Samuel like we have to think about are the people in 1 Samuel more impressed with themselves or more impressed with God a book you might want to pick up this week that I have not read yet but I listened to a lengthy podcast on it and I need to order and read it myself is called Bully Pulpit by Michael Horton. But listen, in a land where there is no king to faithfully rule over the people according to the revealed word of the Lord, I'm talking about Shiloh here in 1 Samuel, where there is no king to faithfully rule, where there are no priests to faithfully facilitate the revealed word of the Lord for the people, is there any spiritual authority to be trusted? Wouldn't it be sensible for Elkanah and Hannah to ask this question? They were were leaving their little son with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. They could not trust them But there was an authority they could trust. The Lord Himself. In the same place where C.S. Lewis quotes what I quoted earlier, writes what I quoted earlier, he also said this You can't judge the truth of a claim based on its abuses. In our text here, as we've already talked about, king and priest. The answer to this authority question comes in the office of prophet. I'll remind you, a prophet is also appointed by God, and he forwards the revealed word of the Lord to the people. The prophet isn't a man who who gets in God's way. Instead, he hears from God and speaks what God has to say to whoever God tells him to say it to. He doesn't reinterpret what God has to say or sift through it or leave out the tough stuff. He speaks with authority, but it is a derived authority. For he has been delegated by God to reveal God to his people yet again by the word of the Lord. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, the words of the prophets often come down to a single word. Repent. Repent. Return to the Lord. Who is the prophet that the Lord is going to reveal himself to to forward his word to Israel? A little boy named Samuel. Chapter 3. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel, not lying in his own place like Eli, Samuel, instead, was down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. This boy could not get enough of the presence of God. And the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel! Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood. The Lord came and stood, calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. And he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then, He opened the doors of the house of the Lord. What was Samuel thinking about this vision, these words? Well, he was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord, very beginning of chapter 4, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. When everything was spiritually rotten, when everything is spiritually rotten, God is the only one who can bring repentance and renewal. And he does that By revealing himself through his prophetic word. There are many things that we could say about this chapter. It's a wonderful story of Samuel's call. But I think one thing we should mourn about, grieve over, is that Eli basically shrugged his shoulders. In the same way that he shrugged his shoulders regarding his son's behavior, he hears now judgment for the second time. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to me. We've been talking about this a little bit on Wednesday nights. The reality that the fear of the Lord can be half right. It can be a slavish, submission to God as, I think as Eli is pointing here, the sovereign one. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And so we shrug our shoulders, or we may shrug our shoulders just saying, God's sovereign, basically he's just another name for fate. I'm not saying that as true. I'm saying that's what our hearts can be saying. And so we go through life kind of skating around holding on to this truth of the sovereignty of God and it brings about a slavish fear that just says how do I still need to perform in order to get me out under his watching eye? Or we shrug our shoulders and say I'm a Christian I believe in Jesus and all that but Let the Lord do what the Lord's going to do. That was Eli's take. But that slavish fear needs to know a filial fear. A filial fear, filial means of a son or daughter. And this fear is to recognize that God is the Redeemer. And yes, He is sovereign. And He is mightier, creator and king than we could ever imagine. Perfect in holiness. Definitely not us. Yet, He sends His prophet, priest, and king to inhabit flesh, to walk among us, in holy perfection, and to lay down his life as an offering for traitors. And it's all the Father's will that he should, through Christ, bring many sons and daughters to glory. That Christ would say, my death is securing eternal redemption for all my spiritual siblings. So that when we come and we say forgiveness belongs to the Lord, thereby he is feared. It's not a fearful, slavish fear. It's a a pronouncement of wonder saying, all glory be to God. I can be forgiven. The one who is creator and king has also come near to me. He said, I have died to redeem you. Hear my words And believe. My death is sufficient for you. The blood that I shed, my body that was broken, it was for you. Therefore, believe. And when you believe, you will know me as the gracious, mighty king. Who I have always been. But you're going to see me new. You're going to be In my kingdom. You're going to be able to say. Your kingdom come. And your will be done. Because more and more and more. My spirit is going to give you. That delight. And that treasure. But Eli does not know it. Friend. Brother. Sister. Do not. Be Eli. Do not just stop with, let him do what seems good to him. Because do you know what seems good to him? He revealed himself to Samuel. Though Samuel did not yet know the Lord, because the Lord had not yet revealed to him, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel by his word, standing there and speaking to him. And the word of the Lord then becomes the word of Samuel. For all Israel to hear, God's authority, Samuel's authority, I should say, is founded in God's revealed word that he spoke to him. And the revealed word of the Lord to Samuel reveals that Samuel now knows the Lord. Because he's speaking God's very words. Samuel, in a sense, has been converted His mind, his heart has been illumined to understand and to believe. Let me tell you this. Let me tell myself this. Personal renewal only comes. Only comes through the revealed word of the Lord. By repenting from our other efforts to renew ourselves and instead trusting the gospel, that there is good news, eternal good news in Jesus. He brings renewal when he opens our ears and makes wide our eyes and illumines our hearts to repent and believe simply that. I am not telling you this morning, go home and read your Bible to get better, man. The word of the Lord brings light. The ultimate word of the Lord is Jesus Christ. So if you go home and read the Bible this week, which I hope you do, would you read it with Jesus? Would you read it looking to Jesus? Would you read it praying to Jesus? Would you read it worshiping Jesus? Because He is the Word who stands and speaks. This is the gospel that we preach here. This is the only reason that there's any authority in a local church. It's not based on seminary degrees, congregational meetings, fill in the blanks. There's only any authority because it's derived authority. If I ever stop preaching the gospel here, would you fire me, please? That's the only place for a pastor, for an elder, for a church, to say that we have any authority at all. It's right here. It's right there. Right there. And our king not only died and rose again, he ascended and sits at the right hand of majesty thinking of us today, praying for us, interceding for us. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Let's pray. Oh God, we believe. Would you help our unbelief? Speak your word to us. Bring new life where there is not life new birth to someone who has not yet been reborn and bring revival to hearts that feel stuck, to hearts that are sitting in their sin. Oh God, by your grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, renew us, we ask, for your glory.